This podcast is a ministry of Christian Life Center in Berwyn, Illinois. Our goal is to create a real faith for the real world, and we hope this helps you grow. For more information at Christian Life Center, visit us at our website, www.berwynag.org. Thank you. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. What a privilege to worship the Lord. We don't always think about that, you know, we kind of enter in, kind of take for granted. We become very comfortable in the house of the Lord. We start to uh, take for granted the fact that there's always going to be an opportunity for us to enter in and worship. And But worship is really the highest calling of a human being. Higher than evangelism, higher than even loving your neighbor, worship of the Lord is the number one commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's the number one thing that we're supposed to do, to worship God. And so, but, but frequently, you know, the issue for us is that, that our worship it can be tainted by what we're going through. How many of you ever had a day where you just didn't want to sing? Just raise your hand, yeah. Some days you're just not in a singing mood, and so sometimes that happens, and so uh, uh, we go through things, and that kind of clouds our worship. In fact, along life's way, different things that happen to us can, can change our, our, the way we worship. And so uh, today we're looking at uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, a simple verse that God spoke to me as I was reading it this week, and just spoke, said, Preach this. I'll be honest. You know, God said, "Preach this, this one little verse." And I, I said, "Come on, God. I haven't been in the pulpit for two weeks. You know, you're going to give me this kind of stinker of a sermon." And uh, and uh, but you know, God is God, and so that's that's the way it works. So evidently, you deserve this. And We're looking at First uh, John. When First John is written, it's late in the first century. The youngest and likely the last living apostle is writing to the community of faith that he is in charge of. These have come to know Christ through him. He knows that his words are being captured because they've already captured the words of Peter, and Luke has already captured down, the, written down the the book of Acts and. He, he can see that these different communities are collecting the words of the apostles that formed those, those communities and, and hold, are holding on to them. And so he recognizes that, that the words that he's writing are important words that are going to be captured for a long, long time. He also knows that the church that he loves so much has been through an awful lot. He has been alive through the reign of Nero and Domitian, and he has seen persecution come against the church. He has seen people tortured, simply tortured for their faith in Jesus. He has seen them go through very great difficult times, being lit on fire, fed to lions. All those things have happened in his lifetime. He has seen them. Unbeknownst to him, as he writes this in a few five, six short years, he himself will be boiled in oil and dropped off on the Isle of Patmos to die where the Lord will speak to him and give him a great revelation, which is the final book of our New Testament. He recognizes that his life is ebbing away for him as a man in his 70s or maybe even 80s. He is older than most people live in those, those days. And yet, 
for 50 or 60 years ago, he walked with Jesus. And he watched Jesus teach in Jerusalem and the many hamlets of Jerusalem. He saw great things. He could sing with us today, He is good. He could sing with us today, He is the God of miracles. He could sing with us. He, he saw all that with his own eyes. In fact, he begins the book of 1 John by saying, that which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. You know, He's the last one alive who can say that. Think about who's writing this book. He's the last person who can say, I was there. And the old spiritual says, were you there when they crucified the Lord? He's the only one who can say, yes, I was there. All the other apostles had forsaken Jesus on the cross, but there was one who stayed there. To him, Jesus said, uh, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Jesus gave his mother while dying on the cross, gave his mother to John and said, you take care of her. And mom, this is your new son here. And so, so John is the last one. He was the youngest. He was the youngest, no doubt. He was the youngest. All the others were older than he was. And he was but he was also the most impressionable. He'd spent so much time with Jesus. And, and we see him at the, uh, at the uh, Last Supper leaning his head on Jesus' breast. There was such great love. He calls himself in his own gospel the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's really powerful. It really carries a sense of weight. Before we jump into the simplicity of the verse, we need to know who's talking. Who is this guy? When he, when he was on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, he, he bequeathed his mother to John. When he died and Jesus resurrected, Jesus appeared to the to, uh, to or Jesus, uh, the, the angels appeared to the, to the women, and the women ran back, and they told all the apostles, listen, uh, he's risen from the dead, and, and two of them were bold enough to break out or run towards the tomb. But, but the youngest one, John, was the one who got there first. It was he who jumped into the tomb, walked into the tomb, and saw where Jesus once laid. That which we have touched with our hands, which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard with our very own ears, I testify of that to you, he says. And so you could see now he has watched as Peter was crucified in Rome and as, as uh, Paul has gone through his imprisonment and as the lives of these apostles have been spent for the kingdom of God. He is likely the last living apostle and he has something to say to the community that is going to continue on. He recognizes that the church is wrestling with many issues. Persecution, sure, but more than that, there's a general enablement of, of worldliness around them. There's a sense in which the worldliness of, the, of, of, of that time is now pulling people out of the church. They, they were once on fire as the word came to us today, kind of directed us to recognize that Faith is fragile and faith is sometimes emotional. And there were people who, 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 whose faith got fractured and walked away from God. Those who were once among us, he talks about in chapter 2. He says those were once among us, but they were never of us. They walked away. And he recognized people were falling into sin. And so he addressed that in chapter 1 of 
1 John, he says in verse 7 through 9, he says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He says to those that are being wooed into sin in another place in this book, in chapter 2, he says, if anyone obeys the word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He calls the church who are flirting with the world to step out of that and step into this new, deeper, stronger commitment. I mean, to, to say to a group of believers, if you really love God, you must live like Jesus did. That's a high standard. If you really love God, you must live like Jesus did. Another thing that he's wrestling with is the church is splintering and fracturing. There are divisions that are happening within the church, and so he addresses that. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still living in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them that makes them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, and they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Again, in chapter 3, he says it very succinctly, reminding them again that they cannot continue in those divisions. He says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The third thing he is he's combating and he's addressing in the, his final words to the church is this frequency of apostasy, people who are falling away from the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 15, these famous verses come alive to us when we understand what he's addressing. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Again, he says in chapter 4, Friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false spirits have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God, that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is in the world. So John addresses these, these three aspects of that. And then he closes out his, his book here with this last and final line. He says, Dear children, dear children, Keep yourselves from idols. What an odd thing to say to the church. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. What, what, what is an idol? I mean, likely he's not speaking about little wooden idols. Uh, Isaiah kind of pulled the, 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 the blanket off and showed us what idolatry is in Isaiah chapter 44. He, he, he speaks in the, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but he's making fun of idolaters. He says, The blacksmith takes a tool and works it in the coals. 
He shapes an idol with hammers. He, sh he forges it in the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker and he roughs it out with chisels and he marks it with, comp with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest and planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in a fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and he worships and he prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or the understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? <coughs> Excuse me. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is this thing in my right hand not a lie? So he, he says this, and, and those last couple verses tell us what we recognize the Scripture sees. Is, is, this, is this thing for real? Is this thing genuine? And It says that, it reminds us that it comes, idolatry comes out of a deluded heart. It is not the idol that, that challenges the heart. <clears throat> it does that, but that's not the primary thing. The first thing the idol does is it springs forth from a deluded heart. The things that, that we believe wrongly about God, those things come from our heart. Listen, hear me when I say this. The idols, we are not importing, we are likely not importing idols from our culture into our heart. We brought those idols into the church in our own heart. It is the deluded heart that makes us look at that thing that we hold in our right hand and gives us the inability to say, this is a lie. It's very difficult for us to grasp a hold of that. So the, but that's what, that's what idolatry is. And idolatry, my idol, can lead you astray. Because I talk about my idols. I share about my idols. Likely we're not given to a wooden idol, <clears throat> although there are plenty in our culture. We can see them all around us. But likely we're not given over to those. So what kind of idolaters might there be in the house of God this morning? You say, well, I'm not an idolater. So let's just pretend this was Jeff Foxworthy preaching this message this morning. Do you worship a God who is all mercy and never judges? You might be an idolater. Do you worship a God who holds on to your past and won't let go of that? You might be an idolater. Do you worship a God who always does miracles and never lets you tough it out in the natural? 
you might be an idolater. Do you worship a God who wants you to be happy, comfortable, and living in pleasure all the days of your life? You might be an idolater. Have you convinced yourself that God wants you to have the things that you covet from your neighbor's lives? You might be an idolater. Does your God not have processes and priorities and plans that you are required to implement into your life? If so, then you might be an idolater. Does your worship leave your ego and pride intact? You're, you might be an idolater. Does your vision of what is desirable or acceptable come from the world around you? Then you might be an idolater. Does your God need you? You might be an idolater. Is your ministry about you? You might be an idolater. Do you love the celebrity preacher more than you love the Jesus that the celebrity preacher is supposed to be talking about? You might be an idolater. Does your God wink at your own sexual sin? You might be an idolater. Does worshiping the God of your choice seem the thing to do? You might be an idolater. You see, we live in America. We live with choice. If you weren't going to the Pastor Appreciation Luncheon today, then you would have many choices for lunch. We face this crisis in our home all the time. In fact, we, we got into it the other day. My wife and I got into it. I'm just being perfectly clear with you today about a misunderstanding that regarded the same thing. What do you want for dinner, she said. I said, I don't know, I'll take you out where you want to go. I can't go out, she said, I have to go do something. I said, she said, I'm going to run out. What are, you, what are you going to do? I don't know what I want. What do you want? I don't know. She doesn't, she, I'll, do, eat, I'll eat anything. I'll eat anything. Listen, I don't have to have anything. I'll just make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I said. She said, she said, I thought she said, anyway, <laughs> fine, whatever. That's what I thought she said, and she went out to do her thing. Came back about 40 minutes later, and dutifully I had withheld my peanut butter and jelly sandwich until she walked in, and she said, what'd you order? I said, I didn't order anything. I told you I was going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I've been waiting for you to get home so we could eat this peanut butter and jelly sandwich together. And she said, I did not work my whole day feeding children peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat your stinking peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's criminally stupid, but that's what we argued about. We, we have choice all around us. What would you do for lunch today if you weren't going to the Pastor Appreciation Well, you could have 80,000 different varieties of tacos in this town. You can have Within a couple miles of us, you could have Bohemian, fast food joints galore up and down Ogden Avenue. You can have Polish food. You can have uh, 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 Italian food. You can have, it's, it's everywhere around us. We, it's a big choice. My wife and I got into it because there's so much around us. You don't realize that's not like that in any other culture in the world. 
Most cultures in the world, the majority of the world, they're going to have rice and beans and something else. It's not what's for dinner, it's here's dinner. Right? That's right. Oh, you don't want beans? Here, let me scrape those off. Now have just have the rice. That's all. That's how, that's how your adjustments are made. That's how it is. But we live in a culture of choice. That infects our worship. Because when we read the Word and when we, when, when we live our lives, we begin to think of ourselves as if we're standing at a smorgasbord. Oh, I'll take a, you know, a little bit of the God who heals and I'll take a little bit of the Word of God, just a little bit, I don't want the whole thing. Big, it's a long book. Some parts are really boring. I can't read those minor prophets. Minor prophets, I read those minor prophets, they're so negative. Judgment coming on you for this, and judgment coming on you for that. I'll be honest, as a pastor, I cannot start at the beginning of the minor prophets and go to the end of the minor prophets because the next sermon will be me throwing thunderbolts from up here at, at every sin, and I can't do it. I have to read a couple of those minor prophets and then go back and read the gospel, and then come back and read a minor prophet and, and go back and read it. I have to be reminded of the New Testament while I'm reading the Old Testament sometimes. I don't know if that's how you do it, but that's how I do it. And so, so when I'm reading, you know, there's just a lot of the Bible that we, we're kind of confused about, and we, we, we don't really want to work through it because, well, quite frankly, there's good shows on. You know, there's, there's, you know, you could be watching This Is Us or one of those other shows that's so, so popular, you know. And so we, we choose not to do that. We, we, we have a choice. We have choices. We make choices, and we, we choose what it is that we, we want to believe about God, and that is dangerous. Dear children, he says, you know, recognize that this comes from his heart, his heart of love. In fact, John is not thundering from the mountaintop. He's pleading with you over a cup of coffee. He is saying, listen, I, I, I love you. This is for your good and for the good of the church that is going to live on long after I'm dead. I'm coming to you and saying to you, for your own good, keep yourself from idols. Protect yourself from false beliefs, from things that aren't true. Protect yourself from these things that you, you feel as though you're protecting. I mean, the, the reality of it is, the Word of God sometimes should be a punch in the face. The Word of God should be a... In, in 2 Timothy, he, Paul says that the Word of God is good for reproving and rebuking and exhorting. Now, exhorting can be positive, although many times it's negative, Right? Your children are doing something wrong. You go in and exhort them to not do that ever again, right? But reproving and rebuking are definitely negative. Nobody wants to be rebuked. People leave the church when they're rebuked. What happened? Well, the pastor told me that I shouldn't be doing that. Really? Maybe that's because you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe because that, he cares for your soul. Well, I don't like that. Well, tough beans. But don't be a sissy about it. Being a Christian is not for sissies. Reading the Word of God is not for somebody who is... Listen. Reading the Word of God is not for somebody who is, who is too sensitive. We have to be willing to take the good with... Oh, I want to I wanna claim all the promises and I want God to never have me go through tough times. That's an idol. That's Honestly, that's an idol. Well... People will say, well, no, no, you just don't have faith. No, I, I, I am following the God of faith, the God of Scripture. I have an ongoing argument with one person in the church about whether or not God tests his people. 
I believe God tests his people. You know where I get that from? I get that from the scripture in Genesis where it says, and God tested Abraham. <laughs> I get that from that scripture. I think that God tests his people. Why do you think that? Because it says, God tested Abraham. And a million other verses I could point to you that God uses these things to examine our hearts. Not because he needs to know, because you need to know what you really got going on the inside. Because you think you're all that in a bag of chips, and all of a sudden temptation comes, and you go, oh, Lord, it's the devil. <laughs> but the devil just exposes what's going on in the inside of your heart. So we, we come underneath the, the pressure. We come underneath the pressure of things, and we find ourselves not wanting pot, these things. We... The scripture says that we will develop for our itching ears people who preach what we like to have preached to us. God loves you. He's got shiny little gifts that he's given you. He wants you to shine like a star where you are. That's a wonderful half-truth of scripture. That's, yeah, we could, we could preach the other half of that. That wonderful gift he's given you is in your corrupt heart. It's got to be mined out of there, and the sludge has to be boiled out of that. And you have to be purged. It has to go through the dross. You have to go through the hard times. God, who wants to get that gift out of you, is going to stick you in the fire and refine you like silver seven times. I don't want that, church. I don't want the refined by silver church. I want the precious little stars and jewels. I want flowers and fuzzy stuff. I want the warm and fuzzy God. Well, that's a God of your own making. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, you could look it up later, that the Lord will destroy those that destroy the church. He'll destroy those who destroy the church. I, I, kind of almost amusing to see people who say, well, I'm going to be a Christian without the church. Well, there's nothing that Jesus loves more than the church. Not the building, the people. You're going to be a Christian without the church. You're working in counterways with what God is doing. God is not friends with your idol. God doesn't take kindly to false gods. God is at war with all the false gods. Go ahead and see what he did in Egypt. He went to war with the, the god of the frogs and the god of the sunshine and the god of the gnats and the god, you know, all the bug gods. He did all, he did, that's him at warfare. When you embrace an idol, guess whose team you've chosen? The losers. And you wonder why you're going through such difficulties because your idol is in your heart. And you're, you've embraced that thing, and God says, I only have one attitude towards idols. The only good idol is a dead idol. That's the only good idol. When they brought the, when they brought the idol, when they brought the, the ark of the Lord into the presence of the idol, what happened? They walked in, and the Dagon was laying on his face. Broken down. Why? Because God is going to say, hey, good to see you, Dagon. How you doing? I've been over in Israel. You're over here. That's not, that's not how God is. The one true God, the God of gods, is at war with idols. So when you embrace an idol, you have chosen the team at which God, in which God is at war with. And so now suddenly you find yourself caught 
And that makes you a civilian casualty in spiritual warfare. And that's why we have people who are rolling, churning through these things that we go through in life. We like to listen only to sweet words. Words that tickle our ears. I mean, yeah, that's normal. That's natural. I mean, who wants to listen to negativity all the time? Not me. I don't want to listen to it. But when you walk into the doctor's office, you don't say, Doc, before you tell me about the answers to my blood work, make it positive. <laughs> make it good news. Your doctor's liable to look at you and say, well, that's the thing. I had, it was positive, and that isn't good news. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I've had this experience in recent past. Went to the doctor. My, my doctor was really good. I went in there, and he, he looked in my mouth, and he said, I'm going to pull on your tongue for a second. This guy was sharp as a tack. I mean, really a great doctor, Dr. Agrawal down at the University of Chicago. Uh, he's my dearest friend <laughs> for a while. And so... Uh, I walked, I walked in, and he grabbed my, he said, I'm going to grab your tongue. I'm going to pull on it. It's going to hurt. And my friend Steve Lehman was there in the room with me. And uh, he reached up and grabbed my tongue, and he pulled for a second, one second, looked at it and said, this is what you have. You have fourth stage throat cancer. My friend Steve burst into tears. The greatest gift anybody has ever given me was to tell me the truth. Really, honestly, the greatest gift. You know what I did? I said, that's negative. I'm not going to listen to that. And I walked out of there. No, that's not what I did. If they would have had an operating table right there, I would have jumped up on there and taken my clothes off and said, let's go. Let's get it. And he said, calm down. We've got to confirm this stuff. He said, we've got to confirm this. But, but my attitude was, Get it out of my life. That's what our attitude should be towards our idols. Get it out of my life. By any means necessary. Be ruthless if you have to, but get it out of my life. I don't want any false understanding of God. Get it out of my life. I don't want, I don't want to believe in a God who's all fuzzy when in reality sometimes he wants to shake me and say, wake up, you idiot. Don't you see what you're doing to your life? And we have to be willing to say to ourselves, I want the truth more than I want to be comfortable. I want the truth more than I want life to be pleasurable. I want the truth, and I want to represent that truth to my children and my grandchildren. I want to carry that truth forth, because I know there's a lot of false prophets out there, people who are proclaiming a God that's different than the God of the Scripture. But we should be determined that we are going to live our life for that way. If we live our life by our feelings, then faith means less. And feelings come not out of faith, not out of, they come out of our flesh. They don't come out of the spirit, they come out of our flesh. And the Bible tells us we're not supposed to live by our flesh. So we ask the Lord, Lord, deliver me from idolatry. But that's not what God said. He didn't say, come to the altar and I'll extract your idols from 
the holy places in your life. He said, my dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's your garden. You've got to pick out the weeds. Your heart is the heart, the only heart you have is the heart that is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart, this proverb says. Out of it flow the issues of life. You've got to weed the garden. What is it that you believe about God that's not true? Well, that's going to take some thinking. That's why every time you come to the Word, you have to listen to the Word and let it beat you up a little bit. Now, now I, I, I like to hear positive words when I come to church. I love to hear revelation when I come to church. I don't like to hear harsh words like this word. I preached a sermon one time. It was from one of the minor prophets. And I was thundering away, you know, from the mountaintop up here and just abusing the people of God. I mean, just really harsh. Most people in the congregation left with their tail between their legs, wondering if, if really that, that's where they wanted to go to church anymore. But one dear saint came up and said, that was awesome. <laughs> There's always one weirdo that wants to be punched around a little bit, you know. There's always one. There's always one person, and I, you know, I get it that some of us like it, but it, it's, it's, what the reality of it is, is we have to balance our life. I just want what's true. Not what's in my wheelhouse, not what feels good. Not like, oh, pastor, you really told them. I'm not speaking to them. I'm speaking to you. Oh, if only so-and-so was here. He's not, you are. It's the plan of God. Open your heart. Stop making prescriptions. You're not a doctor. You receive it first. The greatest revelation is for you to live out what God is saying. Exercise that, that idol out of your life. Throw it out. Stomp it. Break it. Let, let it fall at the feet of Yahweh. Let it, let it crumble into the dust that it's really made of and worship the living God. Only then will... How, how in the world would God ever pour out his spirit on a church that's full of idols? Just not going to happen. But we have to tear down the high places in our life. So God's word always deserves a response. Always. In this church, sometimes that response is come to the altar and get right with God. Sometimes in this church, that is, the response to the word is, go home and think about it. Sometimes it's, go do it. Today, it always deserves a response. You know, if it's a go do it sermon, response to the altar is meaningless. Hear what I'm saying to you. If God says, I want you to go and evangelize, and your response is to come up here and pray at the altar, oh God, lead people to me, you're praying in direct contradiction to what God has already commanded you. He didn't say, I'm going to lead people to you. He said, go. And what we do sometimes in Pentecostal churches is we don't go, we stay. We linger a little longer at the altar. Oh, God. We can mask our experiences with spiritual jibber-jabber and all, and we can make ourselves feel good. That's the idol. That's the idol. 
It needs to be cut down. Read the word. When it jumps off the page and punches you in the mouth, say, yes, Lord, may I have another. That's good for me to know that. It's good for me to know that you're not just the God of mercy, but that you're also the God who's bringing judgment. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You remember that? That you're not just a God of love, you're also a God who rebukes out of love. That's the most loving thing. Listen, my mom loves me, I'm pretty sure of it. I've had about 60 years of, of living under her tutelage and I recognize that she loves me. But there was times where she was mad enough to whip me with a hanger. You say, well, I don't want to serve a God that whips me with a hanger. That's your idol. I'm talking straight to you today. We just gotta, we just gotta suck it up and recognize that God is loving and kind and sometimes unpleasant. Every single day, God asks me to do something that I don't want to do. What kind of a God is that? Well, it's not the God of my own making. It's not the God of my own making. If God says to me, oh, I only want, oh, I only want you to love those people who deserve love, that's not the God of the Old Testament or the New Testament. He says, you're no different than the world if you only love those who love you. I want you to love everybody, even him, yeah. That one, yeah. That guy, yeah. Even if you have to hold your nose. If you have to dodge the bullets that come from his mouth. See, God's purpose in our life is to make us holy, not comfortable. Holy, not comfortable. So let's wake up and smell the God of our salvation. Let's embrace him. Today, our response to the word will either be one of two things. Rejection and rebellion. I'm not going to receive that. I don't believe I have any idols in my life. That's, you can reject that word. Or you can repent. You get, that's your choice today. We have vanilla. We have chocolate. We don't have swirl. <laughs> you got to pick one. Right? So let's pray. Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope you were blessed by it. If there's anything that we can do to help you further your relationship with God, we would love to be a part of it. You can contact us through our website, www.berwinag.org. Thank you, and God bless.